Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John Kaplan with five-time CRO and author of the wildly successful book, The Qualified Sales Leader, John McMahon. Johnny, how are you? Cap, good afternoon to you. How are you? today. I'm, I'm doing good, buddy. I'm doing good. Yeah, you're looking sharp, man. Looking Thanks, sharp. buddy. Thanks. So, Johnny, there are very few companies right now, if any, in the world that aren't feeling economic pressure. And, and that pressure is, you know, tending to flow all the way through um, to the selling environments and selling organizations. So today, we're going to talk about the competencies and skills associated with negotiation. And Johnny, as you know, several times a week, our listeners are, you know, reaching out to us, asking us to talk about, you know, how do you sell effectively in tougher economic times? So I'm excited to bring this topic to the listeners today. Yeah, it's only one part of it, right? I mean, you have to still do the job. You still have to justify the the product, but then we're going to get down to, you know, what do you do when you're actually negotiating? Yeah. Yeah. So in, in order to help us with that, uh, joining us is Tim Cato and Tim is a senior partner at force management. He combines more than 40 years of sales management, professional development, and business consulting experience to help selling and buying organizations win better deals and improve critical seller buyer relationships. Tim's a subject matter expert on many things at force management. And when it comes to the topic of negotiation, there is no better. So he has a very unique perspective as he has spent time with what he calls both sides of the table. So not only has Tim worked with some of the most elite selling organizations in the world, he has also worked with some of the most elite buying organizations. So for our listeners out there, when you run into really good buyers who are very skilled at what they do, just remember that the average buyer receives receives training several times a year when the average seller is lucky to get trained, you know, at best one time a year. So prior to force management, Tim was the guy that some of the most sophisticated buying organizations on the planet would call to help them create and capture more value from their negotiations with sellers and selling organizations. Tim recently had a great dialogue that I think is really appropriate for this conversation today. So he had a great dialogue with a seller who was asking him about his time spent with, in quotes, the other side of the table, the buyers. And the seller asked, hey, Tim, what tricks are you teaching the buyer to take advantage of us? To which Tim, <laughs> to which Tim responded, this is awesome. We teach the buyer the exact same principles we teach the sellers. Greater value is achieved for both sides when we work together to create value first and divide value second. So in other words, something that the buyer and seller do with each other versus something they do to each other. So that's a fundamental paradigm shift for most of us. And we're going to dig into that a lot more in this episode. Tim has sold and consulted in more in uh, all major North American market centers in Europe, Asia, and Latin America. He's implemented major sales, business development, and buying initiatives for a variety of organizations, including AT&T, American Airlines, Experian, Microsoft, Coca-Cola, FedEx, Ford Motor Company, HP, Symantec, Walmart, and hundreds more. Johnny. Please say hello to one of our favorite sons at Force Management, Tim Cato. Hey, Tim. Really good to see you once again. You're looking yeah. sharp. Buddy. Thanks, John. I appreciate that. I'm even more appreciative. He didn't introduce us that, uh, you know, however, tell me he has that weird uncle. So yeah. 
I'm glad he avoided that. Favorite son, that's pretty good. I like it. I'm already feeling feeling good and special. But I'm I'm really happy about this topic because as you you suggested here, Sean, in, in really nice words, been around for a while, and I got a lot of passion for this topic. Okay, so Tim, let's uh, outline maybe like what could be perceived as the problem statement, right? So the way that I look at it or have looked at it, maybe it's right or maybe it's wrong, that in, in a negotiation, there's time, there's power, and there's knowledge. And if we take a look at time, power, and knowledge from the standpoint of the rep, maybe the customer, and then procurement, which is getting involved a lot these days, and or is always involved, but sometimes in times like this even more. If you take a look at uh, time, you know, the rep feels like they're under pressure to get the deal and get the deal now at the end of the quarter because their manager's banging on them. Maybe they forecasted the deal. They feel pressure to bring it in now. So time is doesn't feel like it's on the side of the rep and but on the customer they may need to implement it so maybe they don't feel like they have time but maybe procurement feels like hey i got all the time in the world to negotiate a better deal for this company then when we go to power the rep if they've done a really good job of selling the product and justifying the product throughout the entire sales process they may feel like they have some power because they they also have knowledge about the customer's environment and they know, you know, that the customer needs their specific product to get this done. And the customer also knows, feels like they have some power because they're going to buy a product that's going to really help them because in, you know, every customer really needs a personal win in a lot of these major buys. So maybe they feel like they're gaining power if they get that personal win. And procurement feels like they got the power because, hey, you're not getting the purchase order until I issue it. So I got, I got a lot of power on you. And then knowledge, the rep again feels like they have some power or knowledge because they know the environment again. The customer also knows the, the rep. They know the product. They've checked out references. They've done, you know, install visits, those types of things. And then procurement feels Here's where they're probably weak. They really don't have any knowledge. They don't understand the use case. They don't understand the technology. So there's a weakness there. So if, if we looked at that as the problem statement, maybe you could help the audience walk through, you know, the, those different scenarios and the power, the time and the knowledge that each one of these different players has in a negotiation. Is that, a, that that's a lot to swallow, but you know, through it. But as much as that is, this could be a conversation that's all over. So I like us for at least right now, this conversation, let's focus on that dynamic you just talked about, John. Um, and there is a lot to unpack, but let me, let me back it up just one level to talk about a couple of things. Sure. Because what you described in that matrix, what we've often found is that is chock full of either reality or perception. You know, and in all cases, if you don't address the perceptions early, that's going to be your reality. So a theme that we'll likely be talking about that we could play off of that, that frame that you set up, which I think is really good because a lot of selling organizations or sellers believe that's the reality that they have to deal with. John Kaplan, especially in times like we're heading to right now, where there's a lot more scrutiny over spend. There's a lot more interests that need to be looked at. And oh, by the way, let's not lose sight of the fact, because this will be a topic for another discussion. There's a lot of negotiation going on on their side for budget, for urgency, for priority. But let's just talk about our side, because ironically, the more we influence our side, the more it helps them. So, so let's break this up a little bit. Perception. You talked about time. You talked about you know power. Those are two really powerful things. The science and negotiation, John McMahon, it, it teaches us that there are two things that have a huge impact on the outcome of negotiated agreements, emotions and the perception of power. Mm -hmm. Emotions, 
if I'm the rep at the end of the quarter, and this is the deal I got to get to either make my quarter or maybe make my full year, and I don't have a good pipeline like the three of us were probably hammered on them all the time, I got to get this deal. It is really easy for me to suck into my alternative to getting this deal done, and it does not look good. And you know what, John? There are old school negotiators on the customer side. That's, a, that's exactly what they want us to believe. They want us to feel vulnerable. They want us to feel fear. Why? Old school negotiators have learned, the more I make you feel vulnerable, the more likelihood I get a better deal. And to be fair, I might've made myself vulnerable because, you know, I might, like I said, I might've forecasted the deal. I might not have a big pipeline. And now I have to bring the deal in. It's the last two weeks of the quarter. We're starting to negotiate and I'm not sleeping very good at night. Yeah. You know what else, John? I probably brought in Kaplan a few, a few weeks ago to try and with their CEO or all the people. So there, there's a whole lot going on here. It might cause me to have fear, um, but also cause me to misinterpret power. See, if you looked at the science of negotiation, I'm going to put a definition on power that we've helped our people understand. All right. right. Okay. In a negotiation, the side that is perceived to have the better alternative is perceived to have more power. And the science and negotiation pretty clear on this. The side that is perceived to have more power almost always captures more value in a negotiation. Now, I said it about five times, that word perceived or perception, and that's where the problem comes in. If I believe, because I haven't, maybe put myself in the best position early in the conversation or early in the sales process that they could get exactly what I offer from other people. Guess what that old school negotiator procurement's going to say? You, somebody else, doesn't matter. I get what I get. What does that mean? We didn't influence decision criteria, John. We didn't attach to the biggest problem. We haven't understood our competitors, how to build in our differentiators as relevant to the customer's outcome. So that, that, that's just a whole angle there, perception of power. I, I don't have a good pipeline. I got to get this one. There's just a whole lot of factors that, that that general perception of they have the power, right? Um, I think what I have often you... found when we, when we consult on deals is that actually is that necessarily true. And we're giving our power away by defaulting to the perception. And one of the things I think you were touching on earlier is that the earlier in the sales process that you start to actually lay the groundwork for the negotiation, the better off you're going to be when you're pulling it forward towards the procurement side. Yeah, John, that is going to be a theme for everything we talk about. Now, in, uh, in software development, they call it shift left. Start interest in security or other things way earlier in the process. Same thing as it relates to building our position for the negotiation. You know, I, I sometimes joke, I, I'll ask people that were in the early stages of looking at sales negotiation. I'm going to call tomorrow, John Kaplan, with a customer who kind of wants to know our point of view. And I simply ask a real, real consistent question. Right? What percentage of your deals will involve a negotiation towards the end? You know, they go figure what their answer is every time. Yeah. 100%, maybe 120% because we do several of them. And then I say, when do we start getting ready for that? When do we start building our perception of that? You know, when I'm looking at the last month of a quarter and something's look a little sideways, John, I think it is starting early. And one of the things we tell people, this might be a nugget to take away, to start the negotiation process before the other side believes we're negotiating. And the good news for our sellers out there, when you are execute, executing an effective sales process, you're simultaneously executing a negotiation process. You just got to be aware of it. Yeah, let's touch on two things then. So first of all, perception or better alternative. So if I was a CRO, which is, how, you know, many times, um, and I'm in a room with a rep and we're being negotiating, you know, somebody's pressing us really hard for a discount. This is more of a tactic, but it is because I have a better alternative. Maybe the rep doesn't, but I've actually said, look, I'd really love to have your business. 
but you know, I really don't have to have your business this quarter. So, because I want to make sure that we do a really good job, you know, implementing it, you get what you want, you buy when you want to buy. Right. So I'm trying to, I have that type of alternative, but sometimes the rep doesn't have that type of alternative. That's right. Really solid point. Having been on the rep side of that equation, having been on the CRO side of that equation, what's the blinding glimpse of the obvious? At the end of a quarter, we may have different definitions of a great outcome. Yeah. And John, I've been in the position where the CEO, if it's not done, comes swooping in at the end over top of me, the CRO, and they got their own definition of a great outcome. Another reason to to shift it early in the process, but you know, I I, I think there's uh, a lot that can be said for that insight of what goes on at the end, because what you do with that little shift, hey, I'd love to get your business, but I'm more interested in you being successful and all that stuff. Guess what we're now starting to make it about? Them and their alternative, as opposed to us and our alternative. Yeah, and and pity the poor seller that gets sucked into an old school negotiator's tactic, but I'm going to make it all about you. And I feel really bad. Your company's had our business for 20 years. And you might be the first rep in the history of your company to lose that. I'm sure it won't be good for you, et cetera. But let, and let's go back to why you really have to start this early. Okay, so Tim, in my experience, procurement's gotten very, very smart, like you said. They've been trained very, very well. And sometimes they've been trained by CROs that go in there and train them on all of our tactics. So what's happened in a lot of, especially the major organizations, they do what I call separation of church and state. So what they do is once the the rep gives the quote to their champion and they fill out any type of internal paperwork, once that hits procurement, then procurement essentially puts a gag order on the business and says, you are not allowed to speak to that sales company any longer until I issue a purchase order. And what procurement's trying to do is take all the value that we've instilled throughout the sales process, the quantification of the before scenario, the quantification of the benefits in the after scenario, you know, how much money they're going to save, how much more revenue they're going to get, how more, how much more efficient they're going to be, those types of things. And now if you waited until the last minute, you haven't done a good enough job with your champion, with the economic buyer and building a value case that's so powerful that it becomes very difficult for procurement to, to do the separation of church and state. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, there's a bunch of sage wisdom inside that, John, but I want to go back to the way you frame that up. Once the seller has passed on the proposal or the recommendation or whatever, so the blinding glimpse of the obvious is what's happened before that moment. Correct. Not only how have we influenced the requirements, uh, you know, we'll call them required capabilities, the desired outcomes, not only how have we shaped those so that whether we're in the room or not, when they look at that list and they look at who fits it best, we're going to win. Or on top of that, how have I prepared my champion? Because they don't put that gag order on our champion. They put it on us. And to what degree is the champion prepared to say, you cannot take this item out because this is the key to us achieving that outcome. So that's a, another key point of what do we do before. Now, once it happens, then I'm left with a couple of other things. But what I would teach the people on the other side of the table all the time, John, is two things. Number one, you're buying on behalf of somebody in the business. No procurement professional in the world, John, wakes up in the morning and says, I think I want to buy something. They're buying on behalf of some internal customer that they have. Naturally. Yeah. That me, the seller, I actually might have more understanding of the seller's needs than they do. And so a couple of things. I know, especially if I'm in the league going into procurement, if they say no to me, they got to go back and talk to their internal customer and say, why? Why? Well, you know, they wouldn't lower their price. They wouldn't give us this concession or that concession. But I'm counting on the fact if I did my work upstream, the balance of the ROI, wait a minute, let me make sure I get this right. We got an issue that's impacting our brand. 
We got an issue that might make us subject to compliance risk. We got an issue that's costing us millions of dollars every year. And you want to slow this down because you want to capture another $100,000 of discount, US? You know, so there's a lot that's going on there. But John, if we don't do our work up front to put ourselves in the best position for that reality, it's going to feel like we're helpless and we've actually given them more power than they likely have. Well, the good point that you that you brought up is the fact that you have to have done such a good cost justification that they absolutely feel like they're losing every day that goes by that they don't buy. If they don't feel that way because you haven't done a good enough job there, then you've kind of given the power back to procurement. No question. No question. um, I'm just so compelled to highlight a couple of things. Um, You guys have done such a great job of digging into this time, power, and knowledge. Um, And look where we've landed. If I can just summarize this part of it, where we landed is um, the size of the problem and the negative consequences of the problem creates power for both sides. And that's true no matter what you're talking about. It's true when you're talking about negotiation. It's true when you're talking about executive level calling. It's true. So attaching yourself to big business issues is always going to give you better outcomes in this conversation. And then Johnny, you know, for me, champions are always the great equalizer in a negotiation process. So as Tim talked about, a lot of time, power, and knowledge is based on perception. And if I'm honest with myself, if I'm trying to understand those perceptions and I'm trying to do it from my point of view, from outside that company's point of view, looking into that company's point of view, you really have to ask yourself, do you really have a champion? Because that's what a champion is for. And I love what Tim said about, you know, I've rarely seen champions with a true definition of champion with power and influence. They have power and influence. I rarely have seen them get gag ordered. And if they do get gag ordered or they play along in some way, one of my favorite sayings to, to tell a champion is you can't see it if you're not watching the video, but I, I make my arms like alligator arms. And I say, look, you cannot get alligator arms at the end of this process. We're going to go through your procurement process. We're going to go through your purchasing process. We're going to do exactly what's required, but you cannot disappear. And and really, that's a dialogue with the champion that says, at the end of the day, we've agreed on this is the value. This is what you expect to get for that value. If you disappear and they ask me for something else, I might not be able to deliver that value to you. So I want to I take that to highlight step. that. Yeah, I want to take that one step further, though. Yeah. It all comes down to the champion preparation, the champion preparation for the following. So let's say I did, I've done an amazing job creating value. It goes to procurement. Let's say there truly is a gag order. The champion's not allowed to talk to me. I'm not allowed to talk to the champion. Time kills all deals. Yeah. We can agree on that. So yeah. the longer that deal is hanging out there, when it's gone to procurement, Guess who else knows about that deal? The competition. Competition. What is the competition typically going to do when they know they're losing a deal? They're going to call as high as they can in the organization, number one, and they're going to offer as big a discount as they possibly can. And number three, they're going to offer a lot of FUD on your company. So you can expect that that's what's going to happen. Someone's going to call way above your champion's head maybe even above your economic buyer's head or to the economic buyer, they're going to discount. They're going to have a high-level C-level person call another C-level person, and they're going to create a lot of FUD. So here's what's going to happen internally. Now, that economic buyer that just took that call is going to go straight to the champion and tell me, tell me specifically why I got to buy product A When product B, I just got a call from the CEO and they offered a 50% discount underneath what the price is from product A. So if your champion's not prepared to handle that and not 
no hums and uh, I don't know, and stand up to the pressure, then you're going to lose the deal. So you have to literally have that conversation with the champion. What are you going to do when you get a call? You got to tell them that that is absolutely going to happen. And you have to role play it. And they can't hem and haw when they get that call. See, John, what you're talking about is what I frequently see as one of the most misunderstood aspects of who is my champion. People talk about willingness to sell on our behalf. And I always think there's one more step on that preparedness to sell on our behalf. And that's on us exactly for that moment that you that talk. is on us. We have to prep them because it is going to happen and we have to role play and we have to ask specifically, what are you going to say when they, you get asked this question? And hey, another thing, John, what are our champions always? We think we're testing them, qualifying them. They're doing that to us all the time. They're saying, you know, if I'm going to loan my credibility to you, I'm going to put my good name next to what it is you do. I'm going to make sure that that's de-risk for me. So when you predict the future and you give them the tools to not just protect your deal, protect what they get out of that deal, your credibility goes through the roof. And it's not just the gift. That's the gift that keeps on giving, right? Maybe it's another deal at this place. Maybe they go somewhere else and they know you not only have great solutions, you've got great process and you help avoid unintended landmines. Yeah. And going back to what you said, I love the quote, you know, predicting the future. And that doesn't happen just at the end when you you know that they're going to get a call after you've given your quote to procurement. It has to happen throughout the entire sales process that you're prepping your champion and you're literally predicting the future. You're saying, hey, as an example, you're going to go into a meeting right now where the competition's champion is there. They're here. I'm going to tell you, here's eight objections you're going to get about our company and our product. What are you going to say? And they'll say, well, I don't know. Okay, so now you have to do the preparation. And if you're not and then when they come out of that meeting and it was successful because you prepped them and you predicted the future, to your point, you've gained a lot of credibility. And that doesn't happen at just, again, one step in the sales process. It happens constantly in the sales process up until you have that purchase order in your hands. Well, and even beyond, John, right? Don't you want that champion telling the economic buyer, you actually do need to pay attention to post-sale implementation and go to the QBR but that's a whole nother issue. No, yeah, but that's true too, you know, because the champion's going to be in charge of the implementation. So they have to know everything about how it's going to be implemented, who's going to be trained, when they're going to be trained, all those types of questions. Especially Absolutely. if that's one of my differentiators, right? So let's um let's talk about the um the we're talking about going early. We're talking about going often. We're talking about negotiating all the time. Tim, sum up for us a little bit, like the mindset of really, you know, doing that kind of upfront that you're, you're negotiating, you're negotiating on the first conversation. Could you explain that a little bit more to our listeners? I mean, I love the quote, negotiation is a process, not an event. What do we really mean by that? And how do you do it? That's yeah, a couple of things. So two themes that kind of tie into this, John, we about start early, see it as a process, not a tactical exchange at the end. A process starts at the beginning. And for us, when you start looking at that, there's an individual aspect to that, but there's also an organizational aspect to that. And we have found most success when a executive sponsor working working with us or looking at anything sees it as much as an organizational competency as an individual skill set. It's one thing for me to, to hire really experienced people, John, that know what they're doing on the go. They've negotiated big deals their whole life. Yeah, but their definition of a great outcome has probably been shaped by all those places they've been before. And that might not be your current definition of a great outcome. So part of this, John, is from the very beginning, there's a, there's a, uh, um, a aspect of negotiation called anchoring. Anchoring is nothing more than things that are said or done by either side to create a frame of reference for the negotiation. 
And the term anchoring, imagine a boat floating in the water. You drop the anchor, the boat stays right there. Anchoring in a sales negotiation environment is the same thing. What gets anchored into the conversation is likely what we'll be negotiating at the end. So if it's about cost, 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 that's where we're here. We got limited budget. We don't have a lot to do. We're looking at who's going to step up and help us. They'll be our partner for the long time. When all the anchors are intended to make us feel vulnerable or they start from the very beginning, we're in the HOV lane towards a single item negotiation at the end. And what world-class negotiators know, I need to avoid that. It's about so many other things. So what do I need to do as a seller? Early on, I can anchor as well. John, you, you once told me, if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander, right? This is a skill set starting the process earlier. What are early stage anchors that I need to put in place? Not to play a trick on the buyer, not to manipulate the conversation. I know that if they're only looking at the purchase of our software, John McMahon, and they're not thinking about the implementation, especially how many customers that we have are shifting from a license model to a subscription or consumption model. Like if we don't talk about the adoption, the utilization, the measurement afterwards, early on, it's left out until the end. And we say, oh, but we've got this great success team. And the customer says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody does. What does that mean to me? No, I got to start that early. That's the individual side. Early stage anchoring, if you can use my term, or influence decision criteria early on, that's somehow I start the process early. I got to recognize the other side anchors that are intended to make me feel vulnerable. Well, there, there's ways to deal with it, but I keep wanting to bring it back to the bigger thing. And then organizationally, you, John and John, if you're the leaders of my organization, you got to give me some guidance on what I should be negotiating for, which should reflect yeah. the strategic priorities of our company. Yeah, let's, let's move into that conversation. So I've heard you say negotiating is an individual skill. Negotiation is an organizational competency. <clears throat> Talk to us what you mean by organizational competency and what are some critical components of organizational competency like table stakes that have to be in place? Yeah, well, I think the first thing, John, is to recognize it as a process as we've been talking. Companies all over the world are experts at their financial processes. They're experts at their product development processes. A lot of them are even experts in their territory management processes or account development, they don't always think of negotiation as a process. I think the minute you turn that corner as an organizational leader, you got to ask yourself a few questions. If it is a process, when do we manage it? What does it look like? You know, uh, at what point do different parts of the business come in so we can manage that process? I think the, the, the second part of that organizational competency is not only ensure that people know how to negotiate in a selling environment. They know what to negotiate for. Yeah. And this is such an important thing as business models change in selling organizations right now. You know, we, we did work a few years ago, John, with a company that had historically been in on-premise, mainframe. That's what they sold, right? Big upfront licenses. Then they make a couple of acquisitions that look more like SaaS businesses. And the poor sellers out there saying, you know what, what do you want me to do? Because they saw it as an either or. And guess which one they knew? The big license, the big commission, the upfront, get the license. And at some point they buy these other things fine. Well, guess what the investors were looking at? You know, how well do you weave those things into your portfolio? So we got to give some guidance all the way down to whose paper do we use? You know, a lot of reps, John, think that's a wash. Yeah, of course, I'll try ours. But at the end of the day, that's not a big deal. You talk to general counsels and organizations. When you say yes to their paper, you just signed us up to 80 hours of work. And you're the one that's complaining about we're not responsive at the end of the court. So that guidance, it's a process. What guidance do we owe? And then it's all about giving them the tools, the processes, the how that connects with the guidance and weave that into our operating rhythm. Like, here's the thing I say all the time, John, 
I ask customers, when do you get full visibility to the deal that's being negotiated? Moments before the end, right? How do you know that your team is out pursuing good? And one of the things we found all the time in a lot of selling organizations, Chun, the only person that's got visibility to the whole deal is the rep. And in a lot of those organizations, not talking about managing the internal process, John, we dealt with one, an individual rep had to go get somewhere between eight and 12 internal approvals for most of their deals. And guess what would happen? Finance, they go to them, they give a concession, services would give a concession because they were only looking at their piece and they even had a deal desk. And what ended up happening is eight different internal functions gave a concession because they couldn't see the whole deal. They wanted to be helpful and supportive and get deals done. And at the end of it, somebody would come in and look at it and say, we gave these seven concessions and we also gave a disc. It just, so it's looking at it as a process, providing guidance, weaving it into the operating rhythm, the, the knowledge of that process into the operating rhythm so they could get visibility earlier. And then, John, the biggest one, hold people accountable to following the process. Yeah, I think, you know, we talk about an ideal customer profile all the time, excuse me, on this show. And, you know, elite companies, I think, Tim, they talk about defining what a great deal is. So at a uh, an organizational competency level, can they answer... What does a great deal look like? I mean, that's one of the first places you'd start, isn't it? Absolutely. And John, I'm doing one of these um, in a couple of weeks. Well, I'm going to be at uh, three days with a cross-functional leadership team of a long-term customer of ours. Uh, really good organization, really great people. And I asked this question. If I was a new rep, brand new here, where can I go to get one written view of what a great deal looks like here? They said, uh, we really don't have that. Depends on who you ask. Well, what do you mean? Well, if you ask the manager, here's what they'd say. If you ask finance, here's what they'd say. If you ask legal, here's what they'd say. Operations, services. We're going to put them all in one room and say, let's all agree to a great outcome. Did one of those just before the end of last year with another one of our customers. And the rep said, see if we've ever heard this right, definition of a great outcome. Deal by the end of the quarter. Finance went, hey, sorry, we hate those deals. We like it revenue at the end, but those deals are always the lowest margin deals we have. And the general counsel said, we hate those deals too because we end up giving concessions. We don't have time to respond. We agree to the things, operations. We hate those deals too because we don't have time to start planning up. So, it's bringing together that view of a great outcome. You would think that's a fairly straightforward affair. John, more often than not, you know, I've got a psychology degree. Those sessions look like group therapy more than anything else mm. because we're all over the work. And how in the world can we expect a rep to go get us one of those if we don't define it for them up front? And it changes. Tim, what about the concept of a walkaway point? In all the literature, people talk about being prepared and making sure that you have a walkaway point. How does that fit into organizational competency? You know, John, I'm going to get a little wonkish right here and give you two answers to that. One, now we're talking about our negotiating position. And if I'm in a really strong negotiating position and you don't have to get this thing done, because I know I've got the great pipeline or other things taking place, I'm in a stronger position to not be taken advantage of, to not have a power play pulled on me, right? That, so that's, that's one part of this answer. But the other thing, one of the things that's unique about a sales negotiation, if we do it right, what's different is this is also about the ongoing relationship, whether it's a brand new customer or an existing customer. And so I think that concept of walkaway point doesn't really fit a sales negotiation scenario. Mm -hmm. What I think fits better is I'm walking away right now, but the door is open. 
And I'm going to start to define for the customer, what would it take for us to re-engage? Now, if I've done my work up front, I know there's an impact for them if we fail to reach an agreement. I'm going to map out for them what it would take for us. But guess what, John? I am always leaving the door open for new ideas, for for us to trade to get past some of our, our hangups. But I know it, it helps a lot of people mentally to have this walkaway point there. I'm not going to do it anymore. That's fine. But I think what's more reflective today, given how precious those relationships are, I'm not going to be a victim in this and succumb to your tactics, but I will lay out from a position of knowledge and strength and not worried about the time, John, here's what it will take for us to move forward. And mm. if I own the business, I would expect my reps to be able to have that conversation if I've given them rights instead of me having to fly in at the end every time to find that for someone. I agree with you, Tim. Like I personally wouldn't want to have a walkaway point either. If under the assumption that I did a fabulous job of selling and the way that I used to try to frame it for my sellers was you have to be able to sell against free. So you have to start your sales process imagining that you're going to do such a good job that if the competition gave it away for free, the customer would still see so much value in your product because you did such a fabulous job that there is no way in the world they would still take the free product from the competition. It's a mentality. It's a mindset. And when you have that mindset, I think it really helps you, you know, start early in the process with really selling value to the customer. And it really does battle against that perception of power. But I agree with you, John, because I have actually been in a position where I sold against free. <laughs> What's the reality? Big, large organization, did a lot of stuff. Customers would pay them $80 million a year and someone will blow in and say, you know, we can give you that thing Tim's selling you for free. You, you won't even notice it. We had to have things light up where the customer would say, or the champion would say, because they would call the CFO, right? I, you can get it for free. Why are these knuckleheads thinking about spending $2 million with Tim? Now, going back to what Johnny said, you know, I also have been in cases where we did a phenomenal job creating value and we could have sold against free. And, let, you know, I can remember one deal where I had $10 million deal on the table. We dealt with the top, top procurement officer at one of the Fortune 100 companies. He went out and shopped our deal. He got a deal, basically a site license for $1 million. He can have it, you know? So to John's point, there's also, there is also a walkaway point where he dominated, he, that chairman officer had so much power over the organization, the buying organization, that it did, didn't matter. And for a million bucks, it was going to cost me way more than a million bucks just to help implement the, the damn thing. So across all their different divisions. So in some cases, there is a walkaway point also. But I think it also has to start, if you're going to do a good job in selling, it has to start with selling against free from the beginning. Totally agree. You know, the mechanics of that, anchoring on required capabilities early, making sure you're connected to the priorities of the economic. There's a lot of subcomponents of that. But you know what happens in that moment, John? I want people that not only have been thinking, I'm selling against free from the beginning. When we do hear from somebody else that says, I've got a better deal somewhere else, you're too expensive, you're too big, whatever. I always want my reps to be able to say, compared to what? Compared to what? Yeah. They're offering it for a million. You know, okay, compared to what? And then let them go back and look at their list of requirements and maybe yeah, reach That didn't happen in this, in this instance, but a couple of years later, they came back and bought. Yeah. Go figure. Because so, it was... <laughs> I kind of knew that punchline was coming at some point. No, and it's not really a punchline. It's the truth. So sometimes, to Johnny's point, if the deal is so drastically, you can't do anything, your champ can't do anything, the economic buyer can't, and, and the procurement has so much power that they're just going to tell the buying organization what they're going to buy, and you walk away, and you know you did a great job, essentially they can have it, have it for free, and they're going to have to come back. 
I think one of the big points there is, is if you do walk away, there's an organizational competency that says the entire company is aligned. The rep is aligned with the manager, the manager's aligned with management. And it's, it, it is a, it is a planned, um, it is a planned outcome. It's not just somebody taking their ball and, and going home. Hey, I would like to transition us to some execution, um, execution items. And then what I'd like to do, Johnny, um, is, as we're building all these kind of execution items, I'm going to talk about a couple. I want you to ask Tim about, you know, one here. And then I want you, Tim, at the end here, I want you to put it together for us in a framework. So we've got a lot of great things swimming around here. I want to talk about kind of best in class, what a framework would look like. But, but first, before I do that, um, I've heard you talk about trades a couple of times. And um, you often talk about a give-get strategy, a give-get strategy as part of an organizational competency, as part of a framework. What do you mean by that? Um, well, when you look at the complexity of a lot of business negotiations now, they don't always come down to one single item. Now, old school negotiators might try and make it about a single item. And what I think we could do from the very beginning is start building out, as I've said, those list of requirements. But we also have some rights in negotiation. So I have no issue early in the process to explain to a customer what would be something great that we could get out of this that we might be willing to give some things for. Right? I mentioned one. It would be in our interest to be able to do this final agreement on our contract vehicle versus yours. There's some nuances of what we do. Your team, my team, we'll get tied up in legalese for a long time. We got to move fast. That's something that would be a good thing for us. So I'm, I'm mentioning these kind of things all on, but I got a list my company has given me that says, here are some of the classic things a customer will ask for at the end. Um, discount might be one, payment terms, some T and C kind of thing, something about implementation, something about people or person, wh whatever it is, right? Here's a list of the things they typically will ask for. And we're, we work with them. We said, by the way, prioritize those. What are the things you'd be most willing to give? Because you know, they're worth a lot to the other side, but they wouldn't cost you as much to give. Great. Okay. Let's complement that with a list of desired gets. What would we like to get back? Because here's the negotiator mindset, John, we teach people. I will never concede, but I will always trade. I will never concede, but I'll always trade. Old school negotiators try and get us at the end on a single item negotiation. We've done all this now. We just got one thing left. And everything else is written in stone. Right? That's the oldest trick in the book. I'm yes. not going to be a victim to that. Yeah. I'm going to keep it bundled. So when you say, all this is good, but you have to lower your price, I'm going to say, well, that's the absolute best price for this bundle. Well, your competitor will do it for less. Of course they will. They can't give you all these things that you told me you needed. Now, if you want to change that bundle, maybe we do it. They go, why? I can't take anything away. And that's where a negotiator that's prepared with a give-get list, John says, well, I'm not talking about taking anything away. I'm talking about answer things. This well, is such a fundamental concept, a give-get list, that the company owns the responsibility to set those boundaries and to help the sales organization understand that these are the typical things that are either traded or asked to be traded. Um, and that's an organizational competency. I just see so many companies get that wrong because... Is, as we all know, every concession teaches. And so when you give something without a trade, it didn't mean anything to the person who got it. And so therefore, they're going to ask again because they didn't have to give anything. So I that's ask a, them all the time, John. Why do you think procurement asks for these things at the end? Because they consistently- Because they get them. Yeah, they get them. Yeah. But so John, I, I, point on that? Please, yes, it's please. an organizational competency. But if some of our listeners happen to be working with organizations that don't have that, 
yeah. you could still go get it early on in the process for you. I was going to ask you that if if the company doesn't have it, and we got a, a listener right now, an individual contributor says, "Well, my company doesn't have a list of good gets." Doesn't mean you can't go and get it from a company. Do you have some advice for uh, an individual? I want. I've, I've run organizations, John, where there's five of us. And if sellers out there starting to shape something, they come to me early and say, hey, Tim, here's where I think this is going. Here's what I'm hearing from my champion. They're going to want. And I should be able to sit with that individual, whether I'm a leader, owner of an organization, or I'm a first line manager, or I'm an NC, or I'm someone on the CS team or implementation to start shaping that up front. Hey, Tim, you know, I don't know that we would do it all the time, but this might be something because we've done it before, but you got to get approval. And I think the best way to get approval, bring a complete view back to, here's three things that could happen. And I think there's two things we could get in exchange and give the reps that guidance, even if it's at the individual level. I think it's some, the best reps in the world, they're not going to moan, oh, my company didn't give me one. They're going to say, it makes sense. I'm going to go build one myself. Johnny, can you transition us to multiple yeah. options? Yeah, what is, I mean, but what is the difference between give, get, and just having, you know, different options for the customer to buy? It kind of seems like it's it's almost the same. Well, one feeds off of the other. So let's hold give, gets for a minute. Give, gets are more of, I'll call that trading to reach agreement. And I should have an idea up front what my give, get strategy is going to be, John when the customer's trying to drive me to concessions. Multiple options we think are a little bit different. For us, multiple options are bundles of solution capabilities that multiple ones that are designed to achieve different outcomes for the customer. Like maybe this first one, this year we're going into, we are in a cost optimization mode. So this one, is the optimized cost management solution. But we also know at the same time, we're starting to drive into a different business model. We're shifting to more of a consumption model. This one might be the outcome to help you uh, achieve uh, your two-year shift to the consumption model offer. All right, now I, I clump those up a little bit, but the idea, I mean, the two different outcomes. Why? Because through the course of the conversation early on, I've heard some folks kind of are, are resonating with this one. I've heard there's somebody else. You know, finance is saying it's all about cost optimization. Product and the uh, CEO are saying, no, it's all about getting on the consumption tree. And I'm just going to say, I can help you with either one of those problems. And here's what a bundled solution would look like in this one. Here's what a bundled solution would look like. And I can, up for that one, and I can justify everything that's in my stack back to that outcome. Now, two things happen at that moment. First of all, John, I have not framed this as how much of my stuff do you want to buy? This is what I see companies do a lot. They do the old uh, mama bear, baby bear, papa bear offer, right? Here's three different offers. How much of my stuff do you want to buy? And let me tell you, that's a lot of reason why procurement's involved in our deals now, because for years we've done that. And they've been taught somewhere in there is what I really need. But these guys are filling it full of fluff. So I got to sort through that. <laughs> I'm going to say, you told me that was the outcome. We've talked about that with several people in your organization. Here's our solution that gets you there. But there's some others that said this. Now, I'm forcing them to make a decision, John. Is it all this one or is it all that one? But you know what usually happens? They say, you know, I like both of those outcomes, um, but what I'd like is a little bit from this one and a little bit from that one. And when they do that, John, they have opened the trading door. And that's where I want to be in a position with my give, get list and say, you know, there might be a way to get closer to what you're looking for, but here's some of what we're going to need back in return. And the idea of multiple options is to mechanically design trading into the final stages of negotiation as opposed to mandates for a concession. No matter what they ask for, I got a big list of things. Hey, if you want exactly this one, I'm prepared to go. And I could justify you need everything. 
You want that one? I'm prepared to go. You don't want either one? You want some hybrid? Let's talk about that and shape it together. And what I'm hoping, John, is by the time I get done building that hybrid, they got a huge amount of ownership connected to to um, to that one. Probably will look better than their alternative. Yeah. Or if you're a company with multiple modules, you could say, well, you could have this one now and it does what you want and you can have the other one next year. But yeah. at least let's get it in the door right now. And then yeah, once and it's, I went it's always a lot easier to upsell later on. Absolutely. But what's really important here, John, I'm always going to frame it back to the big business problem they have. As no opposed doubt. to you could buy a little bit of mine now, then you could buy some more in the future. No. Yeah. To get started on the roadmap today to address these four critical issues, knowing that you could migrate in the future towards the roadmap. You know what I'm talking about there. It's just I'm picking up what you're dropping down, Tim. Hey, I, I like that. I like that. Right. What I but love about somebody, the concept nobody of nobody does that. Nobody does no, that. No. What I what I love about the concept of multiple options is a couple of things. Number one. It takes the focus off of the price of your stuff. It's like, here's my list of stuff. Here's the price. What discount, you know, are we talking about? Multiple options are variations of what customers have articulated they may want and may need. And what I like what you said, Tim, is it opens up the door to begin to have a trade conversation to get them exactly what they want. Um, but it also forces the customer to participate in the conversation versus show me your stuff, show me your price, I'll give you feedback. And I just, I think that people just don't do, very rarely do I see multiple options. And if I see multiple options, Tim, it's typically, here's the one with the floor mats, here's the one without the floor mats, and here's the one that's, you know, like you said, mama bear, papa bear, baby bear, what have you. And oh, by the way, John, in, the fog mirror, you know, the one I want you to. Yeah, they're they're insulting to the customer. Like we feel insulted. Like when you go and buy something, they'll say, yep, you can do this one. This, and they're trying to typically, psychologically, they're trying to force people to the middle. And um, so anyway, I, I, kind of a tapped, I think you do that here, don't you? You do what that in here. You know that your wife only wants you to have one rod, so you bring in the rod. But when you're in the store, the guy had all these other add-on options. So you say, well, I can't bring all this home right now, so I can bring the one fishing rod home, and I can come back later and get the other stuff. <laughs> so we do it in a three-day life. Like Tim, wait, wait, like this Tim said. a therapy for McMahon. I don't know how that happened. Like okay. Tim said, uh, negotiations is happening all the time. All right, Tim, let's wrap this up with a framework. We've talked about so many good points here, but if you were going to give advice to a company or to an individual, a negotiation framework, what are the mandates? What are the minimal things that should be involved in a framework? So John, I'll give you four high level things we've talked about and then bring it down to what's daily practice here for either sellers or sales teams, uh, customer facing teams. We've already talked, it's a process that should start early. We've already talked about requires guidance, not only in how to negotiate, but what to negotiate for, keep that current. And we've also talked about if it's a process that we're starting early, we gotta build visibility into that. And you know, when we are talking about multiple options, to me, that's just part of the creation of a negotiation strategy. We all talk about sales strategy early, account development strategy. Let's come up with a negotiation strategy from the beginning that recognizes we might not have a position now of power strength, but what are the things we need to do in the coming weeks to start building? Now, practically at the individual rep level, you know, we, we say it comes down to three questions and then a best practice. Three questions. First thing to think about, John, which seems counterintuitive. But the first thing I'm asking from the very beginning is, what's the most likely alternative for both sides if we fail to reach an agreement? In other words, Chuck, if I don't reach an agreement, not only what do I have to live with? Oh my gosh, I missed my quota. I missed my year. You know, I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to be living under. What's their most likely alternative? And I start from the very beginning, not just answering it for myself, 
I'm starting to drive my discovery to broaden their understanding of what life with the alternative will really be like. And what I'm really looking for there is to help them understand the impact, you know, and I'm going to try and shape their view. And guess what? While I'm doing that, John, I'm also now starting to define the second question. 180 degrees different. If we can reach an agreement, what would a great outcome look like for both sides? I'm not talking barely acceptable. I'm not talking, you know, based on, I'm talking what would great look like. I want to expand both sides' understanding of the possibilities. Most of the negotiations or deals we work with, but I'm going to say differently. We've both been at annual meetings. Sometimes we're the ones on stage giving awards. Sometimes we're there, John, because they're starting work with us the next day. But we're at the awards. Every company I've ever worked has what they would consider legendary deals. Maybe it's one we're giving someone an award for right now. Maybe it's a legendary deal that happened three years ago. But one of the most common points of DNA is it started like this, but it ended up like, you know, here's Mary. She drove the ship. Let me tell you how ugly this deal was. You know, I'm told Mary, you better get out of there. This is not going to be worth it. Mary persevered and look what she did. Because they changed the definition of a great outcome relative to life with the alternative. I've always said, how do you know you're creating value? You give them something better than their alternative. So that's the second question. Third one, I, I'll say it two ways. What tactics do I need to be dealing with right now? Or said, according to what I've said earlier, what anchors currently exist in this conversation? And what anchors do I need to start setting? So if I'm thinking of those three questions from the very beginning, and, you know, John McMahon, I'm socializing with my team. I'm socializing that with my manager, maybe with my person that runs product. Maybe it's deal desk, maybe it's with finance, maybe it's whomever. I can start weaving in the things that would be on our great outcome list. I can start defining that for my champion so that they start to understand, you know, there might be more at play here than what your technical buyers mapped out. And the more I do that, the stronger I'm making my negotiation position and the more value I'm bringing to them. And John, if I'm asking those three questions all the time, that's the basis for my negotiation strategy. And here's the good news. I'm already asking discovery questions about their before scenario, their negative consequences. I'm getting a two-for-one answer. That's not only got a sales and qualification utility, that's got a negotiation utility as well. I'm already asking questions. What do you want it to look like afterwards in the positive business outcomes? the required capabilities, the metrics. Who is the economic buyer? What are their priorities? How do we align what we do with those? I have an old colleague that once said, John Kaplan, 51% of all negotiation problems are actually sales problems in disguise. Don't hold me accountable to the percentage, but if you think about the idea here, when we wait to the end, John McMahon, all the things we missed upstream are going to look like negotiation problems. But if we consciously start early and asking ourselves those three questions and taking the answers, not just to understand our position in the deal, but also our negotiation position, I think we start, uh, you know, being able to hold on to more value at the end. And the good news, we get the customers more value too. That would be my summary. Yeah, very good. Tim, good rap. I, uh, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on the episode. Um, I think, we, you know, we're Johnny McMahon. We're probably going to have to have this one curated and chop it up and turn it into some, uh, some deeper dives. But uh, I love the framework at the end. I love those three questions. I love the concept of, you know, what I heard is organizational line this year, if you are not aligned on the principles that we've been talking about. It's going to have to manifest itself in the field. Reps are going to have to make it up on their own. And this is not a year uh, that I would rely on that. And so listen, go back and replay this. If you're a leader, 
go back and replay this, go back and, and listen to uh, sections that we talked about with negotiation as an organizational competency, and then some of the tools that were discussed uh, during execution, the negotiation framework, give, get strategy, multiple options. I think these are just going to be really, really relevant this year. So Tim, thank you for spending time with us. That was awesome. I said in the beginning, I care a little bit about this. I hope it showed. It did. It did. You're a little passionate about this. I'm getting red face and worked up. Let's go do a deal. Come on. And thanks to all the listeners to for listening to another episode of The Revenue Builders. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com.